Welcome to Belfast City Vineyard, where we are pursuing formation in the presence of Jesus, community gathered around Him, and the impact He empowers us to bring in our families, city, and the world. The following message was given at one of our Sunday services. For more information, visit our website at BelfastCityVineyard.com. Hello, my name is Matthew. I've been coming to BCV with my wife Sheena and our three kids for 78 years and I am delighted, I am so excited to get to look at the Gospel of Mark together today. We're continuing our look at the whole Gospel and today we're in Mark chapter 4 verse 35 to 41. Today we're going to look at water and Philistines and Genesis and storms and cushions and other boats and hemi-hyperplegia. We could spend like a month on this passage. There is so much in this story about Jesus coming the storm. And my real sense is I've prayed and prepared for us today is that there really is something for everyone here. Um, so let's get cracking in. Mark chapter 4, 35 says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side, and leaving the crowd, they took, with them, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the life that you've given us. Thank you that you are alive. Thank you that you are here, Lord. Thank you for your word and how you speak to us in it. Father, open our ears and our eyes to you today. Amen mentioned my wife and my kids there and my daughter Abby is my youngest child she's four and uh, she is amazing she is incredible she is a total firecracker and completely full of life and if you know her you know what I'm talking about if you don't know her if you've not met her maybe seen her around church you probably also know what I'm talking about too but a couple of weeks ago we had a family holiday up in Donegal it's like up the north northwest of Ireland and I've been going there all my life it's amazing we had the best weather and the good weather really uh, increases the enjoyment up in Donegal and on our way back from the beach on one of our last days um, the kids decided we wanted to go jump off the pier. There's a pier called Port Nabla close to where we stay and the tides in Donegal are massive and when it comes in you know there's loads of water it's really deep and it's a great spot to jump in off. So we go we rock up onto the pier. I think it's our last day, so there's a lot of excitement in the family anyway. We've had an amazing time. And little old Abby, who's four years old, who's no higher than your knee, gets to the edge of the pier, and I've jumped in ahead of her, and this moment stands still in my mind. It's perfect. I'm, I'm in the water, I'm looking up at Abs, and she gets to the edge of the pier, and at this stage, like everyone, the pier's packed, because if it's sunny in Donegal, the piers are always packed, and she gets to the edge of the pier, and everyone on the pier pauses and stands stills and looks over at abs 
because she's tiny, she's by far the smallest person on the pier and there's fully grown adults right beside her that I've clearly been spending the last like 30 minutes trying to sum up the courage to jump in. I'm in the water, it's like 20, 30 feet, it's tall. The dad of me wants to exaggerate and say it was at least 30 feet, but it's a big jump. And she gets to the edge of the pier and along the edge of the pier there's this little rail. So it's like she has to step over the rail and at this stage it's only her heels are on the pier, like her whole body is tilting forward towards the sea and so is everyone else's on the pier as they watch her. And she says, ready, Dad? And she puts her little butt down on the ground and bends her knees. I say, ready, Abs? And she just jumps in, and it's brilliant. And the reason she was able to do that is because it was safe. She was in her life vest. She's in a wetsuit. Maybe she'd done it before. I can't remember. She'd seen people do it before. The sea was calm. Her daddy was there. It was summer holidays. It was a memory. And the reason that we start with this story is because this story is the complete opposite of what we see today. And what we're going to do first is we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of the first century Jews at the time. And we're going to say that when it came to open bodies of water, they were absolutely terrified. One of our uh, jobs as we preach and teach the Gospels is to help each other. It's for us to teach and give each other tools to understand Scripture so that we can understand Scripture better and more fully so that we can know and love God more. That's always the goal. So one of the tools we've seen a couple of weeks ago from Alan, he talked about the Mark and Sandwich, if you remember, and he talked about how storytelling back then at the time of Jesus was very different throughout the whole of Scriptures. The storytelling was very different to how it is now. If you were talking about stories now and narratives, and it was a line, the line would just like be straight up, right? And the focus and the main point of what the author or the writer is trying to say is usually at the end. It's usually like the next episode, grand finale, click to watch the next thing, ending on a cliffhanger. All the focus is usually on the end of stories. Or in scriptures and in the Gospel of Mark and in other parts of the Bible, what Alan was saying is it's more like a bell curve. And there's often repetition at the start and at the end, and that puts a focus in the middle. And it's the parts and the stuff in the middle that the author's trying to draw attention to the most. That's a really useful tool for understanding scripture. Another tool we want to introduce today is called the principle of first mention. And what it does is because we've seen with scripture that it's different stories and different genres and different languages written over different lengths of time for different purposes. Um, we also believe, though, that God has brought this together with his spirit in a very, in a unique way, in a really special and a really beautiful way. And so when we come across topics or themes or even words, a really helpful approach in helping us understand them more fully is to ask, when is the first time that this word or theme or topic is mentioned in Scripture? It's some of what the Jewish mindset would have done naturally in their understanding of the Bible. We don't have time to go into that more, but it would have been fairly natural to them. It certainly would have been implied and assumed by the writers and the editors that wrote these books and these Gospels. So as we look in Genesis, in Genesis 1, at the first mention of water, the first mention of open water, and why these people were terrified of it, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The first mention of water in Scripture is a picture. It's found in the context of the whole earth being without form and void and darkness. And the Hebrew phrase there for without form and void, we could spend a year on. But essentially it means like there was no structure there was no cadence, there was no rhythm, there was chaos. It's not the full picture, we'll come back to the full picture towards the end. But in the Jewish mindset, when they think about storms and open waters, there's a fearfulness. And part of that comes from this passage in Genesis at the start. It's the first mention that we see of water. 
without form, void, darkness, chaos, disorder. So it all very naturally leads to fears of open bodies of waters and particularly with storms. And it's not just in Genesis 1, it's not just at the beginning, it's not just the principle of first mention that leads to this mindset that the Jewish people would have had. We see it in Genesis 6, we see it throughout Scripture too. Genesis 6 says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So these first century Jews who knew their scripture and particularly knew their Torah, particularly knew the first five books of the Old Testament as we call it, particularly knew the start of Genesis, they would have known the creation poem of disorder and chaos. Uh, They would have known the Noah story, which is this, everything on the earth shall die. Or in Psalm 69, we see, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. So we're starting to get a sense here of the first century Jewish approach to open bodies of water, the seas, the lakes, the fishing, the boats, the swimming, the not swimming. And we can identify with that in our modern minds a bit, can't we? Open water still today is dangerous. Abby would not have been jumping into the pier if she was on her own at four years old or if she didn't have a life vest or even a little wetsuit to keep her warm. And she definitely wouldn't have been doing it if I wasn't there. If you can't swim, you're not going to go very deep into the water. And we know that today. It was even more so back then because we need to remember um, the parents in first century Jerusalem or Galilee, they weren't picking their kids up from school and then bringing them to Dermot on a Wednesday for a swimming lesson. They didn't have life vests. They didn't have wetsuits. There was no trips to the sea as we understand it today. There was no recreation really involved with the sea or water at all. It's a very, very modern approach to time and weekends and fun and enjoyment and time off and seaside holidays. None of that existed, obviously. When the first century Jew, when the disciples of Jesus in the boat, when the first readers and hearers of this story hear the story, they're thinking disorder, they're thinking unpredictable, they're thinking chaos, they're even thinking death. Because the people beside the Israelites on the coast, where Israel is, called the Philistines, and throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, they come in and they decimate the land of the Israelites, and they're their foes and they're their nemesis and their enemies. Uh, The Philistines came from the sea, and there was something in the psyche of the first century Jew that affiliated the fear of Philistines and being conquered and uh, warfare with people coming from the sea. So that just deepened it even further. For some of them, they equated the sea and open bodies of water with death, and it was even a sign of evil. So we put ourselves in the shoes of the first century Jew. We've come to understand that a wee bit more. Let's look at the text and look at what it actually says about the storm itself in Mark 4. 35, it says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Jesus said to the disciples, Let us go across to the other side. Remember, we've been in the Sea of Galilee for a while now, and leaving the crowd, they took with him, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. So just to step back a second and set the scene, we're at the Sea of Galilee. We've been here. For the whole chapter of four, perhaps longer, a lot of Jesus' ministry has been around this part. He's been preaching the parables that we've heard over the last couple of weeks on the edge of the sea, and he says, let's go to the other side. Sea of Galilee was about 700 feet below sea level, and all around it were hills and mountains. And particularly on the east side, these hills and mountains were pretty tall, and in the northeast was Mount Hermon, which was massive. And it was this discrepancy, it was this interchange between the high and the low that created these weather patterns that made a a unique 
uh, microclimate around the Sea of Galilee. It meant that there was uh, huge storms, which is what we see in this passage, and they would happen fairly quickly. Um, and it was one of the reasons why they called it the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't a sea, it was a lake. It was a big lake, but uh, it behaved and the weather patterns were much more in line with what you'd expect from the coast. And it was the, the wind and the discrepancy and interchange between the, the sea levels that created this. It produced really dangerous weather conditions for which the lake was known for. And the scripture says, a great windstorm arose. This, this word for windstorm is class, literally means whirlwind or tornado. It means tempestuous wind. Tempestuous is a great word. I really have to pronounce quite well. It means a violent attack of clouds or black thunder clouds. One dictionary writes about it that it's never ever a single gust, this word, windstorm, which happened to the disciples and Jesus on this lake, on this sea. It's never just a gust. It's never just a steadily blowing wind, however violent that might be. But it's a storm breaking forth with black thunder clouds and furious gusts with floods of rain throwing everything topsy-turvy. So what we've done is we've put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, the shoes of the first century Jew, and we can understand their fear of open water. Even the fishermen, which some of them were, often didn't go into the deep waters. They would have mainly worked around the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And we've understood their fear of water naturally. We can identify with that a bit ourselves, but theirs was much deeper and much more ingrained in their national psyche. We've seen the storm itself, that it was mad. It was a proper storm. It says the boat was filling with water. Um, this was scary stuff. You can almost begin to feel the chaos, the disorder, the darkness. It was nighttime, remember, the fear in the disciples. What does Jesus do? Mark 4, 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. Now we'll, we'll come back to that in a second towards the end. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. Mark 4 continues. Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark 4, 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. As we look at Jesus' response here to the storm, to the disciples, to the situation he finds himself in, there's two things we want to look at as we go through. One is a continuation of a theme we've already seen in Mark, and the other is the authority Jesus has. The continuation of a theme we saw weeks or maybe months ago now, in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. This passage is also amazing and could spend months in it too, but it's a scene where um, there's a guy that can't walk. His friends want to bring him to Jesus to get healed. They go to the house that Jesus is in. The house is rammed. It's packed full of people, and they can't get to Jesus, so they go up onto the roof, take the roof apart, and lower him in. And Mark 2 continues, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now son of, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here we see in Mark 2, Jesus is being accused of blasphemy. The scribes are angry, they're intimidated, they're insulted, they're probably scared, they're unsure, they're maybe insecure, but they're maybe mainly insulted and they're mainly angry. And they're accusing God, Jesus of blasphemy. 
the reason they're doing that is it's very clear to them, it's very clear in Scripture that only God can forgive sins. And here we have Jesus forgiving sins. This is a continuation of a theme in the chapter 4 that we see today. Because in Genesis 8, back to Noah for a second, it says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Or in Psalm 65, it says, and it asks, Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples? We see here that only God can forgive sins in Mark 2. And in Mark 4, what we're seeing in the Old Testament understanding of all of this that they would have had is that only God can calm the waves and the storm and the wind. Psalm 89 says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. There was a clear understanding that only God could forgive sins and that only God could command the creation, the wind and the seas and the waves. Mark 4, 39 says, And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Only God can calm the seas. Mark is clearly asking again and again and again, as we've seen, who is Jesus? And just under the surface, he gives a resounding clear answer. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is Lord. It's why the disciples, after the storm gets calmed, ask themselves, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the inference, the the assumption, the answer that isn't written is he God. The authority here is off the charts. Uh, He doesn't invoke the name of God to quiet the storm. He doesn't invoke a higher power. Jesus is the higher power. He has the authority to do it himself. And his language here, the language here is class. Jesus' language with the storm with the wind, with the wind, with the waves, it's familiar. It's intimate. It, it, it's phrased in the words and the language and the nouns used. It's as though Jesus were talking to a person. And the tense is used in the verbs and the way it's put in the Greek. It says, peace be still now. Like immediately, it's a command. It's a similar tenses and phrases that he uses with the demons. But it also means peace be still now. But the condition of peace and the condition of stillness is supposed to continue forever. Jesus is complete control here, complete authority. And while there's a scene of chaos and there's a scene of fear, and as we put ourselves into the shoes of the disciples and understood their approach to water and their fear of water, and while the storm itself was scary, the sense of peace that Jesus brings to the scene and to the story and to the gospel I wouldn't have been a million miles away from what the people at the time would have expected. Because if we go back to the principle of first mention in Genesis 1, we saw at the start, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And we've seen already that this is the first mention of water in scriptures. That a lot of the first readers of this passage in Mark, or the disciples at the time maybe, um, would have had in mind this Genesis 1 story. But it's not the full picture. Because the second part of that verse, Genesis 1-2, says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. When we first meet water in Scripture, the principle of first mention is showing us that, yes, it's a scene of chaos, yes, there's darkness, yes, it's void, but it's also a scene full of peace. That is mainly what it is, the creation story in Genesis 1. It is God bringing order and structure and boundaries and calm and peace to the chaos. Genesis 1 and Mark 4 are pictures of God in complete control.
And as we land this for today, we're going to look at other boats. We're going to look at cushions. We're going to look at hemihyperplasia. So Mark 4, 35 to 36. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And the other boats were with him. This has been bugging me for months. The other boats were with him. I love just the seemingly insignificant and consequential details and comments that the gospel writers make. I love it in literature in general because what I often find is those little things that just seem to be asides are actually full of potential, full of narrative, full of light that shines on the rest of the story. And, and I've learned to try to pay attention to that stuff. Um, and so I've been praying for you, just God, what's with the other boats that's just random? Um, what's it got to do with anything? Do you have stuff for us here? And uh, I was trying to think, who, who, who's in the other boats? It could be some of his other followers. Jesus had different uh, groups and kind of circles of followers that, that were more part of his life and less part of his life. And um, it could have been some of them. could have been uh, some troublemakers. It could have been people from Rome or people from Jerusalem looking to trap him. could have been some of the scribes or the Pharisees that we've seen in Mark 2 before and throughout the Gospels. Um, could have been other fishermen, but the answer uh, is we don't know. And actually, if we're talking about the toolbox, it helps us understand Scripture. One of the most valuable and most often used tools I find is the little tool that's about this size, and it says we don't know. It's okay not to know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Um, but it's there. Other boats were with him. And, and as I was praying, God, God spoke quite clearly, and he's he showed me that um, when Jesus calmed the storm for his disciples, he calmed it for everyone. And maybe today you feel like you're in the other boat. You don't have the intimacy or closeness or connection with Jesus. You've not been following him how you might like to or how much you really, truly, deeply care to. And maybe you've been in the other boat following from a distance. Jesus wants to say to you today that he wants to bring peace to your chaos as much as he does to the disciples in the boat. And if that's you if, you, if you've been following Jesus from a distance and you've been doing that for a while, or you're new to this kind of stuff and you're new to the Jesus and the kingdom of God, and you'd like to be in the boat with Jesus, we can pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. The other thing that's been jumping out to me is in Mark 4, 38. Uh, we see the fear and the chaos that the disciples have and the scary storm, and Jesus' response is that he's asleep on the cushion. Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem sleeping through a storm. Do you? Do I? Do we? Does rest, does peace, does sleep escape you? Harmony has spoken before um, about how God has been doing something and she's been seeing God doing something over the years with COVID for people's sleep. And God has something for us with that today. If you find sleep or rest or peace in the middle of storms difficult, I believe the Lord wants to free you from that. He wants to give you peace and rest and sleep. Harmony also spoke earlier in Mark about the need for regular times of retreat and the regular withdrawal in our lives. And she talked about how uh, if Jesus did it, uh, we should probably do it too. Well, do we find that difficult? Do you find that difficult? Regular times of retreat and withdrawal. The Lord today would like to remove that difficulty for you to begin to be able to find rest in the middle of your storms. We want to pray for you with that too. 
number of years ago, uh, Sheena and I, my wife, got to go to New York for an anniversary. It was like a week in New York with no kids. It was unbelievable. I mean, you talk about chaos. New York is mad. It's massive. We had the best time and we probably need to go back like three or four times just to get the full value and to see all of it. Uh, three or four times without kids would be great. And we had the best time and <clears throat> after Sheena went home, I had a work event to go to for a couple of days in the States and so I followed her back home a couple of days later and as I landed in Dublin airport, I get a text, I've got to go to work, something's broken. Uh, so I fly up the road, go to work, try to get out quickly so I can get back to the family, which at that stage I hadn't seen in like a week and a half, two weeks or something. And as I'm at work, uh, my phone goes and mine and Sheena and our family's life are turned upside down forever. Uh, Sheena's on the phone and she's in bits. She's inconsolable. She's crying and I can't actually really understand anything she's saying. But eventually, turns out Sheena was at the GP that morning at the doctor with one of our kids and it was just a regular checkup but the normal GP wasn't there and it was like, I don't know what it's called, the substitute GP was there and our kid was about nine months old and the substitute GP started noticing something and uh, so started asking a bit more questions of Sheena, started probing and prodding a bit more, started taking some measurements and then the GP gets the red book, you know, the red book you get with all your babies, like all the birth details and looking at it. And the next thing you know, this GP has sent Sheena and our child to the hospital, like immediately. Um, it's an emergency. And this thing called hemihyperplasia just crashes into our lives. So I go to hospital and suddenly we're in front of these uh, consultants and geneticists and experts with our child. And um, almost straight away, they're like, I mean, we need to do proper sequencing of the DNA and all that kind of stuff, but we're fairly certain that this is what your child has. And what it means is half your body uh, doesn't stop growing as the other half does and should as our bodies stop growing. Um, and so our lives, as you can imagine, with our nine-month-old child, just turned upside down. Uh, it's a really, really rare growth disorder. And at the time, they were saying, you'll probably need to go to Great Ormond Street in London like every two, three months. And I'm thinking, how do we pay for that? Does the NHS pay for that? What about our other kids if we leave them behind? How does that work in our lives? Is my child going to die? What is this thing? And as you can imagine, it was complete chaos, complete darkness. We didn't know what to do. But the doctors were mostly uh, concerned that with the half of the body not stopping to grow, there was going to be further growth and tumours and there was a high chance or a higher chance of cancer in our nine-month-old child and you can imagine how that would have felt. We just didn't know what to do. Our lives were shaken, it came out absolutely nowhere. We'd never had any kind of medical problems in our family and this was significant and our child was nine months old. Our world was turned upside down and our response in the middle of all of that peace and it doesn't mean that it wasn't difficult it doesn't mean that it still isn't difficult it doesn't mean that it wasn't horrible it doesn't mean that we didn't cry but our general sense and our general experience in the middle of this storm in the middle of this chaos in this darkness in this void was peace and it was order and just to bring the story up to date uh, they've since done all the genetic dna sequencing and our child has a disorder and on the scale of this rare disorder, our child is on the very, very rare end of the scale of the rare disorder, but that's actually good news somehow and the risk of cancer and tumours are, are basically, they don't exist. Um, so it's been great news and uh, our children are all doing great.
But I've spent a lot of time reflecting on why was that my response? Why was that Sheena's response? How come in the middle of like real chaos, like horrible, with a young baby really, um, how come that was our response? Uh, it was our response because God had formed it in us over time, over years and over decades. Uh, it was our response to find peace in the chaos because we learnt it from you. BCV, Andy talked last, year, last week about how resilient we are as a body and he's right. God put people in our lives, in our families, in our street, in our community, in our church that mirrored what we've looked at today. That when the storms come, we can find peace. God offers it to us. And that's why that was our response. And it's usually, in my experience, how God works. He usually uses other people. He uses one another to form and create miracles in one another. God brings peace to chaos. He did it in Genesis at the start. He did it throughout the scriptures. He did it on the Sea of Galilee in the Gospel of Mark. He's done it in my life, my wife's life, and the life of my family. And he offers that same peace to you today. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that you are a God that loves us and wants our best. Father, I thank you that you are a God of peace and of calm. Father, I thank you that you don't just give us uh, nonsense advice that there will be no storms, but you do promise peace and calm and control and order and boundaries in those storms. Father, I thank you that you are Lord. Thank you that Jesus is Lord over our lives, over creation, over the storms, over the wind and the waves. Lord, I thank you that you have authority. Father, I love that picture of the Spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis. It's refreshing, it's peaceful. Let that do something into our cores today, Father. Lord, for those who feel that they're in other boats, may they see that you bring peace to their chaos as well, and may they draw closer to you. Father, for those who find rest or sleep or peace difficult, particularly in the middle of storms, may you remove that difficulty. Father, may you come into our lives more fully and more deeply, and may we all discover the joy that Abby had in jumping into the sea. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church, or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.